Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sorry about the dog barking. That will be the deaf one. She sort of decides she gets lost in the house, which makes it sound like I live in a manor house, but it's not. It's just one floor and some stairs. Well, hello. Welcome to the Wellbeing Lab. It's another fascinating topic today. It's gut health. We're basically talking to, like, one of the dons of, of gut health. Uh, Tim Spector. And this is really fascinating. We started off by talking about why twins, je suis a twin, I am a twin, mine lives on in heaven or somewhere else. And uh, we started by talking about why twins are so important in his research. I set up the twin registry, which is a national twin registry where we now study 16,000 twins from all over the country. And that work uh, is really what gave me this, this broad base to study all kinds of diseases because I was looking at Nature v Nurture for many years and ran up my whole department at, at King's College London, St Thomas's Hospital was Department of Twin Research. And we could study literally anything from back pain, arthritis, breast cancer, depression, anxiety, sexuality, politics, <laughs> sense of humour, uh, aging, you name it, we could we could do it in the twins, and that's really my my background. And so I then sort of became a geneticist, discovered genes, and increasingly, as I got through my career, I got more interested in why identical twins, these clones who share identical bits of DNA in every bit of their body, were often very different for certain diseases. You know, they may have looked very similar, had similar sort of characteristics and uh, quirks that the public noticed, but you know, one would be depressed, the other one wouldn't. One would be religious, the other one wouldn't. One would get cancer and the other one wouldn't. So I was really interested in why that happened. And many years I spent trying to look into that. And it was only when I, about 12 years ago, started looking at the gut microbes, found that was the one thing that was really different between identical twins. And so for me, that was a bit of an aha moment that these clones, <laughs> essentially, who had lived certainly at least the first 18 years of their life together, they'd gone through school, had the same meals, everything, had gut microbes that were you know, hardly any different to if, if they'd be unrelated. And to me, that was you know, really fascinating. And, and that was one of the reasons that you know, I really started this journey into nutrition and gut health. I mean, that's fascinating because I am a twin myself. And funny enough, I'm spending the afternoon yesterday with a pair of identical twins and i love twins so yes i you know they are fascinating and i, I remember twins love seeing other twins oh yeah um, at st thomas's we used to every five or ten years have a big party and once we had a thousand twins at a party in a marquee and it was absolutely you know mind-boggling really but the funny thing was was seeing these identical twins who look just alike being absolutely amazed at other twins because they said, God, they're so alike. Yeah. Because they don't see it themselves. Yeah. You know, it's like, mm. no. And there is a, there's a, I think there's a place called Twinsburg. 
that's it in America. Well, it's a bit like belonging to a club. That's so fascinating because I suppose what twins provided you were a sort of perfect scientific context for looking at the human body. It's called the perfect natural experiment. You know, the only other similar experiments you can do are in mice or rats where you breed them and uh, you try and you know separate out these things. But it's the only way you can do this in humans other than maybe doing some long-term adoption studies where you pick up people later in life who were adopted or separated at birth. But the twin study really is a shortcut to doing, you know, human sort of mouse experiments. And uh, I think it's given us great insights into how much of who we are is determined by our genes, but also, you know, what isn't determined by our genes and therefore what's modifiable. And I think um, this is really interesting. It's fascinating. And how did you end up moving towards what was going on in the gut? Was there a sort of aha moment where you sort of very methodically testing every area of the body and then suddenly it was like, yeah, wow, look at this. Yes. I mean, in a way, moved from being an epidemiologist to a geneticist, looked at the genes. We looked at things like gene mutations, explain why identical twins are different. And that turned out to be no. Then we looked at something called epigenetics, which it's a complex idea, but it's a bit understand that your, your genes alone aren't important. It's the proteins they produce. And that by attaching chemicals to your genes, you, you can act like a dimmer switch and turn them on or off. So I was wondering whether epigenetic differences in identical twins could explain why one got a disease and the other one didn't. And it turned out it does explain a bit of it, but only a small fraction. And so I spent about five years really studying that in detail and then said, no, I don't think that's the answer. It's important for a few cancers and things, but it doesn't seem to have this really big impact that I was looking for. And so the next thing I looked at was to say, well, uh, let's look at the gut microbes in twins and see if they're more different. And when I did that and using genetic methods, you look at the DNA of the microbes you put it all together and then found that actually they are really very different and hardly different to non-identical twins and hardly more different to unrelated. So only about 5% of the differences between us in our gut microbes is due to genetics. 95% is due to environment, which is actually great news because it means that as, as our gut microbes are really, really important for our health, our immune system, our, our brain, our mood, uh, you know, fighting aging, cancer, metabolism, weight, everything, we can manipulate it. You know, unlike the genetic determinism idea, which yeah. I'd been wedded to before, which gave me a rather fatalistic view that all you could really do was blame your parents and, and try and just sort of move a narrow window. Yeah, I like to call it the Larkin approach. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, it must be so fun. I mean, I'm getting excited hearing you talking about this because, I mean, this is like a Hollywood film. What I'm really interested in, just quickly, is for you, how you have to be so focused, I guess, on each area as you're forensically going through it. So you must have to remain so patient and infused by every area, every line of questioning, I guess, that you're going down. Do you see it as when when you've gone down one area... When it hits a dead end, do you see it as a dead end or do you see it as a sort of, well, we can tick that off the list, even if it's been five years going down one area of, of research? Well, I'm unusual in, in medical research in that most of my colleagues pick an area 
and more or less stick with it most of their career. They just say, better or worse, I'm now an expert in this field. I'm yeah. going to keep finding out more about it. And there's always more you can find on it. It's not like it completely stops. But in most areas, there's usually a sort of real acceleration point of knowledge and then it, it plateaus and you're doing a lot of work, but you're getting less reward for it. And the people who get Nobel Prizes and get most of the rewards in science are those people who carry on in one area for you know 40 years in their career. And they are, you know, they know everything about that that area. And many people fail, of course, to get noticed because they've been so focused. But a few people do get those accolades. Most people aren't like me, where they would do an area for a bit and say, you know, is this getting anywhere? Do I see next year a really exciting time of discovery? Or do I think I've got most of the easy pickings from it. And so in my career, I've tended every four or five years to make a decision about whether I'm going to carry on and do it or I'm going to shift to something else. Yeah. And luckily, because I 30 years ago picked this fantastic method called twin studies, that gave me much more flexibility than most people have because I had sort of unlimited material to work with. You know, it was just a question of saying, well, I'd love to do this. All I need to do is go and write a grant and get the money and I can study it. That was always the constraint is, is in science is who's going to give you the money to do it. You've got to convince someone. Yeah, um, I was wondering that. That's the skill. And that's why researchers like myself are entrepreneurs in a way, because we have to sell an idea to someone. They give us the money. We work on it, do it, write it up, you know, which is like getting your money back on the product to the, the VCs or whatever. Then say you've done that. And then you sell them another idea and you work on that. So it, it's that sort of approach. And I, I very much have an entrepreneurial spirit. But yes, many times in my career, I found my, you know, I, I was the world expert quite young on bony spurs in the knee in knee arthritis. Okay. And I was being invited around the world, nice hotels and conference centers in Miami or whatever, to talk on this little bony spur. But it got boring pretty quickly. When you realize, no, you know, hardly anyone else is working in this area. And, uh, you, you know, you hadn't really progressed the field. It, it wasn't going far. So that's to me why I then made these decisions. And in a way, why I moved from epigenetics, which is still a fascinating area. And there's masses of science still to find. But I thought I wanted something with practical application. You know, before I hung up my stethoscope and my, my computer, I wanted to be able to say, well, of the thousand papers I've written, some of these are actually going to be some real practical use to people. Yeah. And so I, I was, when microbiome came along and that started linking to nutrition, I thought, well, nutrition is a thing that everyone can do. And if we can get the science behind it right, you know, we can make a huge impact here on everyone's health uh, in ways that I hadn't been able to do before. So that to me was very much a driving force behind writing my books. Um, my first book on this was The Diet Myth. And then spoon fed and more recently now food for life, which is giving people a practical guide to how to choose food, because I've now realized that the choices we make every day in food are probably the most important we make for our health. And I don't think that's fully appreciated by people. It's also the most important we make for the planet or we we could make it if we wanted to. And I think it, this empowering effect of our choices, uh, I think needs to be heard and people need to be given the tools. So in a way, it's, you know, there's been this, yes, this scientific threshold of sort of boredom, excitement, but also what are these discoveries that are going to enable people to change their lives, improve their lives, 
rather than a oh, oh that's interesting you know i found that you know belief in god was 50 percent genetic doesn't really help people yeah it's a fascinating fact but it, it doesn't really help people's lives much well i, I guess i'm thinking of I'm seeing you as, an, as a, an expert, a scientist, an intellectual, an entrepreneur, and philanthropy as well, I think, because it's a natural thing, I think, when we start learning information to want to share that information. How brilliant now this information that you've been accruing is looking towards and getting a sense, actually, quite a potentially big social change, not just in the medical world, but for people just, you know, in their everyday lives. Can we talk about what goes on in the gut then? People call it the second brain. Spiritually, people look at... We, we can talk they do now, but, you know, I was taught as a medical student, it was just this boring tube, basically, that converted food into poo. Yeah. Absorbed a few nutrients and minerals on the way and got rid of toxins. And that is generally what most doctors still regard it as. Because we knew about microbes, but we only focused on the nasty ones that gave us diarrhoea or cholera or, you know, whatever it was, uh, salmonella. And so it's only really the last 10 years that this whole area of, of the gut microbiome and health has come really into public attention. And that's because we now realize that the, the gut microbiome, which we, is the community of gut microbes, these are microscopic organisms that you need a microscope to see, is composed of about 100 trillion of these uh, bacteria, other organisms, but also fungi and viruses and parasites. And together, they are this community that outnumber the cells in our body and have 200 times more genes because they're essentially like a series of chemical factories that are producing all the useful chemicals in our body for us. And we evolved with them. So we probably evolved from bacteria, uh, but very early on, all animals start having a relationship with bacteria so that we didn't need as many genes and you know we would have cooperating we would provide a nice environment for them and they would produce a lot of the chemicals that we can't produce so as i said they're chemical factories and they produce vitamins for us a lot of the b vitamins they produce chemicals that affect our brain neurochemicals things like the serotonin pathway people have heard about sort of the happiness hormone they are key to our immune system so as well as most of our nerve endings being in our gut hence if you put them all together it equals the size of a cat's brain apparently um, so we're full of nerve endings in our several meters of intestines but it's also where most of our immune cells are so we've got all these microbes we've got these thousands of chemicals they're producing all the time and they're talking to our immune system, which is lining the gut. And these are the immune cells that are absolutely crucial for everything now. So we didn't know much about them, but you know, people know a bit more about immune health now after COVID. Basically, they're there to regulate against infections. So you know, you've got to have them primed so they will fight off infections the right amount, not overdo it. If you overdo it, you get things like uh, autoimmune disease, and also oversensitive, you, you get food allergies, which is a, a recent modern phenomenon. So getting your, your gut microbes to produce the right chemicals is crucial to having a really well-functioning immune system that is able then to fight cancer, reduce the rate of aging. It does all kinds of 
extra things uh, and it's probably also influential in changing our energy management system which is our, our metabolism so the whole thing is you know we can't live without our gut microbes essentially and we thought it was all about digesting food it was the initial idea which it still does because the body only has about 20 chemicals itself to break down food it relies on the gut microbes to do most of the work because they have thousands of specialist enzymes and, and microbes to do that work to extract all the good bits from food that we that we need so it's this complex relationship uh, so holistic level that you know other medicines have talked about aerodevic medicine and chinese medicine have always put the gut at the center of health they didn't understand microbes but it turns out you know their observations were correct and Modern medicine's always put the heart at the, you know, the centre, but actually the gut is the the thing we sh- we need to be keeping healthy. That probably is one of the most important organs in the body. And it, if you put all the microbes together, it's hard to think about it, but it weighs about the same as the human brain. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's like having a whole sort of solar system of things in a whole galaxy of things in our stomach. And and do you get fed up talking about? Because at the moment, it's a lot about probiotics. I'm often asked about probiotics and supplements. I'm sure you were. Yeah, I'm sure I you mean, were. half the population take in the UK take some uh, vitamin or food supplement or probiotic. I think they're different categories. There's no evidence to show that 99% of vitamins or supplements work in the population. So wow. apart from B12, or if you've got a particular disease or deficiency, most of these ones are supposed to boost your health have been proven not to work. Probiotics, on the other hand, which is just so people don't know, it are often capsules or liquids that contain a few species of live microbe that have been shown to be useful in health. And these are ones originally put in yogurts that we know are, are safe and healthy, but there's only a, a limited number of those guys. And uh, you can buy these in health food places and they are, they are quite expensive. And the studies have shown that they do work for people with a variety of conditions and diseases. Think everything from depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, traveler's diarrhea, getting over antibiotics and various other inflammatory conditions to some extent. But they've not been shown to prevent disease in normal people. And also we don't know things like doses and which strain to use and which to recommend because all the trials have been different. They don't agree on standardization. It's not like uh, standard drugs. So there's still a lot we don't know. And the other problem with probiotics is the reason they often don't work in people is because you know we don't sh- share the same microbes in our community. Mm-hmm. So you give two people with completely different gut microbes, the same two or three species that you'd find in a probiotic, they are not like to work in both people. So we're sort of waiting for the next generation of probiotics. They have a broader spectrum of, of species in them, which is greater chance of working, plus maybe personalized probiotics that would be based on your own gut microbiome, not just some average one, which doesn't really exist. So I'm sort of hedging my bets a bit on probiotics, unlike vitamin supplements, which I, I, I absolutely, the evidence is clear, they don't work. But yeah. Um, probiotics there's some evidence they do work but we we need to do better I think that's that's sort of where I stand on that. and in general 
I'd rather get probiotics from food. Well, I was going to say... I'm a big fan of fermented foods, which generally in studies tend to do better than probiotics, and we don't really use enough in this country. Don't get me started on sauerkraut. We could be here for a while. But there's many more different species in sauerkraut and kimchi and kefir and kombucha than there are in uh, you know, a bottle of probiotics. And I think that's the key. So you're, you're covering your bases better. You know, it's, it's, it's a much better insurance policy to take 20 or 30 strains of, of microbe than yeah. just these bottles have two or three. And they're expensive. So let's focus in on this really exciting work and let's talk about Zoe. Yeah, give me a little sort of background on Zoe and what goes on there. Okay, so Zoe's a company I co-founded six years ago. Zoe means life in Greek, but it is uh, essentially the idea that we all have very different responses to food. And if we can work that out, we can tailor nutrition advice to individuals, both based on their individual responses of their metabolism to food and their gut microbiome, which is also very different. And if you you do this, you've got a much greater chance of choosing foods that fit in with your own metabolism, your own body, and long-term, these are totally sustainable. So it evolved this idea because originally it just came together as an idea, let's use the microbiome, let's use some of these new technologies that were around. And before we launched any product, we did a study in a thousand twins where we gave all of them identical meals. And this is the, the key is this, everyone has an identical muffin which they eat at the same time all around the world. And we looked at the blood responses to that muffin, which by conventional nutrition theory should be the same for everyone uh, because it has the same calories, the same glucose content, etc. But it turned out there was a tenfold difference in normal people in their response to the muffin, both in terms of glucose and in terms of the blood fat levels how much blood fat was still hanging around six hours later after that meal. Some people had cleared it. Some people still had lots of it hanging around. And we found that both the sugar peaks and having too much fat in your system were both stressing the body. They cause inflammation, which is like overheating of the body, if you like. Uh, inflammation is normal in small amounts, but when it hangs around, it irritates the blood vessels and is generally associated with aging and metabolic problems, putting on weight, uh, feeling more tired, et cetera, et cetera. So all of us, when we're eating a normal Western diet, are getting these sugar and fat peaks. And we haven't known about it because we haven't seen it. And this is all regardless of calories. So uh, yeah. in a way, we did this study. We found that even identical twins, when they had at the same muffins, would have different responses. So that study was the pivotal one that really launched the company to say, okay, we've got these big differences. We've now done a thousand people. If everyone does that test, we can predict how you're going to respond to any food and give you advice to say, okay, you should eat less pasta. You can have as much pasta as you like. Your breakfast should be mainly fat, etc. And that then has gone to a home form of this. This was done at St. Thomas's Hospital and Mass General Hospital in Boston. But We've got a home version of it, which is essentially the same. The key here is that on your phone, you can look up any food or meal and you get a personalized score from 0 to 100. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, it makes sense to me, really, because we're all so unique, aren't we? Every one of us is unique. That explains why diets that work for some people don't work for others, and yet we're... Yeah. We're told from birth, this is the way to eat. These are the guidelines. Stick to it. You know, everyone has to do this. And they're constant fads, aren't they? Constant fads. Yeah, exactly. We're fighting against it with these fads that, again, always work for a few people, but not for most people. And you say, well, that's weird. Why, you know, they they gather momentum because they have worked like keto or whatever, you know, or gluten-free. I've always worked for a minority of people, but they don't work for (laughs) generally you know, everyone in that road or everyone in that family or or whatever, because there are these huge individual differences that until now we've never really appreciated. So finding these individual differences between people is the absolute cornerstone of personalized nutrition and the whole rationale for it. And, you know, the difference in our microbiomes, just to put it into context, because, you know, five years ago, you'd probably been talking to someone about how the genetic revolution is going to give us genetic testing to tell you what to eat, right? It turns out that, you know, we share 99.5% of our DNA with each other. You and I are fifth cousins on average, right? Oh, um, lovely. Well, I'll expect a Christmas card. And you can send me some cake. Yeah. So, um, yes, but we only share less than 20, 25% of our gut microbes. So most of our microbes are completely unique to us. And so wow. it's that, And this is why our reactive response to food is so different. And even in identical twins, you have 100% of the same genes. So it starts to make sense only in the context of having discovered the gut microbiome. You can see why people got it wrong before. They didn't really think there was anything else that should, you know, theoretically, we should all behave the same in this old fashioned idea that, you know, our gut is like this tube and our metabolism is like a furnace. You put calories in one end, you burn it the other end, and that's all that matters. And this, and that has led to this whole calorie-obsessed industry that has spawned the diet industry, spawned low-calorie foods, low-fat products, all this nonsense that now in this new paradigm makes no sense at all and is actually harmful because you know calories are not 
the main thing we're talking about here. It's the quality of the food and it's that quality that the microbes really respond to. Isn't that interesting? Because in a capitalist society, it's just another example of, you know, an enormous industry being driven under quite a limited, in my opinion, term of wellness, include vanity in that. It's not really looking at what we should really be having in our bodies and the, the fuel and how our bodies work. Yeah, the calorie idea suited everybody because first it was something we could measure. It's been around for 100 years, the calorie, and we were to measure it crudely. And it was an idea, as I said, you know, we thought the body was much more simple than that. You just burn food, you work out how much calories it is. You calorie count, you should lose weight. And that's been shown, yes, you can, if you can do it effectively for a few weeks, but then your body uh, responds. And so that's why if you look at all the studies, vast majority of people who do calorie restricted diets are back at their uh, starting weight six or 12 yeah. months later. And many of them are above it because the body is not a furnace. The body is a carefully controlled machine that adjusts and doesn't want you to lose too much weight through calorie restriction. And so that's why they fail. And only a tiny fraction of people can succeed that way. Mm. Uh, although everyone will lose weight for a few weeks if they do it. So they think it's working, then it's they just think they haven't got the willpower. But our bodies are absolutely designed to return. And things change very slowly in the health service. And it depends on the education. Most doctors only get two or three hours of teaching on nutrition in their careers and they're expected to give out advice so most of them bluff it or wing it or say it just it's it's about eating less and moving more and we know that's not true anymore and the whole calorie system is a camouflage to disguise mm -hmm. giving us much more ultra processed food poor quality food that we now know only very recently that ultra processed food of identical calories with homemade food makes you overeat by at least 300 calories a day so you know it's designed to be bad for you and using the sort of angelic cover of low calorie yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're enticed to eat it and of course you just eat more and more of it with all these extra chemicals and uh, you know, it's bad for your gut microbes so this is why i'm you know i'm very keen to get people to think about food in a totally new way because i think it it can blow your mind a bit if you've been in this vacuum of saying calories are you know and, and still a lot of people in this whole field still you know it's their religion well, yeah i'm sure it is it's hard to bring tell me about your book then because this feels like a good time to ask you about that which is doing extremely well probably would be number one if it, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for, for spare, a certain it would royal. definitely be number one yes exactly um so this really is uh it took eight years to write this book so it's called food for life it was a long eight years, actually. It was really hard work. And I realized why no one else had written a book like this, because it's really hard. Basically, it's a practical guide to food. It's a sort of A to Z of food, setting out some of the theoretical basis of what I'm talking about here. You know, what's the microbiome? What's personalized nutrition? Some of these principles. And then basically going through the shelves in a supermarket to say, well, which one would you pick and why based on the science? And it really has opened my eyes to you know i didn't know a lot of this before i started studying it you know you think all lettuces are the same but no if you pick a rosso lolo lettuce with loose leaves and red tips that's going to have a thousand times more nutrients and polyphenols than an iceberg lettuce which lasts longer than our prime ministers but <laughs> has very little else to offer 
And most people in this country buy iceberg lettuce because they don't know that it has no nutrient value. And similarly with breads, we're sort of misled into thinking that if it looks brown or healthy, it's going to be good for us. And just by looking at the fiber contents of them, you can see that most of these so-called healthy breads are absolutely not healthy and that you really need to move right to the other end of the scale to get something that's gut friendly with lots of fiber in it, like rye breads or sourdoughs, but there's lots of fake sourdoughs as well on the market. You know, most berries are really good for you. Dried fruits are not good for you because they've actually got lots of sugar in it. All kinds of things like this. And then, of course, areas like meat and fish, which are quite controversial. I talk about fish, which surprised a lot of people saying that I used to think that was really healthy. But the evidence for it really being healthy is pretty small, actually. The, the latest epidemiology studies, these big surveys, so, you know, at most you might get a 10% sort of health advantage from regular eating fish. It's certainly not this massive one. And I was always told it made you brainy, but there's no evidence it does. Uh, just like omega-3 supplements don't work. Recent studies have shown. So fish is overblown. And, and if we all ate fish, yeah. uh, we, we really harm the environment. And so we destroy huge habitats. And most of the fish we're eating is uh, farmed now, which means they're fed with small fish from the sea, which is destroying our oceans. So exploring those kinds of areas, you know, and saying, you know, there are still some fish we can eat sustainably, you know, things like mussels and uh, clams, perfectly sustainable, ethical, because they're non-sentient uh, and they actually help reduce pollution in our oceans. So, you know, I learned a lot doing it. I learned that coffee is a health drink, and you can basically have up to five cups of coffee. It's good for your heart and increases your longevity. And then, but you know, what I want people to do is understand that why would coffee be healthy? And it's not about caffeine, which is just one of this reductionist idea that we think about food in just mm. a sort of single dimension. Wine is yeah. resveratrol, meats, uh, protein, you know, carrots, are vit you know uh, vitamin A. It's the same idea of calories. You know, it's it's the the food industry and everyone and making it so simple that we've dumbed it down and that's why we, we thought coffee was bad because it has caffeine which if you have too much of it you can die but turns out that the reason coffee is good for your health and your heart is it has it's essentially a plant so it's a fermented bean which is grown in, in the ground most people don't know where coffee comes from but it's a fermented bean so microbes are breaking down this bean producing lots of fantastic chemicals which uh, are called polyphenols. They're very, very bitter generally. And these used to be called antioxidants. And these are like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. So all plants that have high polyphenol counts are really healthy for you. And so things like nuts and seeds, dark chocolate is similar to coffee in its health benefits, and uh, red wine, olive oil, all these things. So it's making you think about food differently to saying, oh, you can't have chocolate, can't have, you know, this, can't have olive oil. Um, it's, you've got to think about food in a different way. It's making me realise how crucial food is to our lives and how woefully undereducated we are on something that's so crucial to existing. You know, and, and that's yeah. what seems so brilliant about your book is it's actually saying, you thought this, understand why you thought this, this is actually what goes on. And it seems like you break down everything. You know, it's fascinating hearing you talk about clams and mussels, even to the extent of 
and they're non-sentient and they help the environment you know i think like the more we know the more knowledge we have the more choices we can make and it's going to benefit all of us uniquely um what about cost because that must come in a lot in terms of well it's all very good so iceberg lettuce is not as nutritious for you as romaine lettuce but icebergs half the price you know does that come up a lot uh, yeah I, I i get criticized sometimes that the advice i'm giving seems elitist or you know upper middle class or any people who shop in waitrose but the reality is that a lot of this stuff that i say is healthy you can either buy cheaply or you can make yourself and so yeah I, you know i'm well off i i have a choice i realize that people on the breadline are struggling but i go into things like in the book about frozen vegetables being often more nutritious than fresh. And there's evidence that canned tomatoes actually have more nutrients and polyphenols like lycopene and things that are good for you than buying your tomatoes, you know, from a supermarket. They're incredible sources of polyphenols and fiber that are really cheap. Canned beans, for example, which, you know, you can get for under a pound a can nearly everywhere. So, you know, I'm a big advocate of frozen berries out of season rather than mm. buying them fresh. And most, many of these things that people didn't think about, you can make yourself. Now, the fermented foods, yes, people are spending a lot of money on really unhealthy yogurts, for example. All children's yogurt basically should be banned. It is, you know, a health hazard. So that people are they're paying a lot of money for things mm. that actually are detrimental to health thinking they're paying it because it's good for good for them or their family so i think you know we're making a lot of poor decisions at the moment and you can make your own yogurt kefir once you bought one kefir you can just keep adding it to pint of milk and keep it going it costs nothing in those comparisons you need to be advising the government (laughs) Uh, yeah well i tried that in covid and uh they they're not very good at listening and I, I did work on the, the national food strategy with Henry Dimbleby, and they there were some good ideas in there, quite moderate by my level, and they rejected them because the government is still heavily influenced by the food companies. Yeah. Uh, the massive lobbying. They spend hundreds of millions convincing government to not change plan. And that's why things like the sugar tax never got expanded, mm. why kids are still being advertised to um for junk foods and why the difference between processed foods are getting relatively cheaper whilst natural healthy foods are getting more expensive and Mm. yeah so that it is political and um i'm not a good politician oh god neither am i i mean you're talking to the person that rather than go through the political route ordered some handcuffs and then handcuffed himself to a puppy breeding facility so that didn't work then well it did well there you go well it did my view is that you know, the word will get out and there will be this sort of grassroots idea of saying we can change this because supermarkets are not evil. If people go in there and and make these choices to say, I'm not going to give my children harmful children's yogurt made of rubbish, they will disappear from the shelves. Five years ago, no one had kefir, fermented milk in supermarkets. Now it's everywhere. I only knew about kefir from the archers. Also, Interestingly for me, my career started from the power of the people, not from the power of the people sitting in boardrooms. I've always believed in the power of the people. So I'm so pleased that there's someone like you who is getting that information out there and wanting to share it and doing brilliant work. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. 
Well, my mind is blown. And by the way, I kind of want to take up that app. I mean, I know it's completely busy and it is quite expensive to do the whole thing. But I'm going to tell you something interesting, listener. After this interview, I went round to my neighbour's house and saw two of my neighbours, Susie and Maggie. And Susie was telling me about how she's been looking about this sort of gut health. And she was like, oh, and it's this guy and they have an app called the Zoe app. And I was like, well, Susie, let me stop you there. That's who I was talking to. She was very excited. So it was nice to then take the conversation on to speak to Susie, my neighbour. Susie the plumber, I call her. And Maggie the artist. You've been in touch. I thank you for it. I'm going to read out your messages. If you hear a little sparrow in the background, that would be a Moroccan sparrow. Just turned the air conditioning off. Now, this is regarding the ADHD episode. Dear Will, hello. I'm still on the waiting list for my assessment. I'm 54 years old this year. Now, this is the assessment for ADHD. The menopause has definitely exacerbated how I've been over the past couple of years so much. I've struggled to find the words to say to the GP, but so glad I did last year. I can now talk about my struggles with work. I feel less stressed and anxious letting people know about my struggles. Thank you. Dear Will, love this episode. I was diagnosed with ADHD in October last year, age 46, after feeling like I was a failure as an adult for the past 20 years. Suddenly, everything seemed to make sense. And I'm a lot kinder to myself now. Thank you for raising awareness of ADHD in adults. It's my pleasure. I thought I actually found it very um, enlightening for myself. Some more messages on a more of a general note. Hi, Will. I'm sending this message in hope that you may pick it up and provide me with some help. I lost one of my best friends on Tuesday to suicide. That's awful. I'm so sorry. I really am sorry. Like myself, he was a young gay man with so much love and support in his life. But unfortunately, he struggled desperately with his mental health and so much past trauma that it eventually got the better of him. I have nobody else to speak to about this and wondered if there's any services you could recommend. Who I can contact to just get things off my chest as it feels very heavy right now. I love your podcast and it's helped me understand so many things. So glad you're doing a second series. Thank you. Um, Well, thank you for getting in touch because actually just you getting in touch is helping yourself get it off your chest. And and I really would recommend speaking to Shout, who I've become a patron of. And I'm not mentioning them because I'm a patron. It's just I am a patron because they're so good. Or I would say the Samaritans because often people think you have to be feeling suicidal, but you don't. You can just get things off your chest. And those are two really good places to go to for support. And well done for reaching out. Sweet message. Hey, Will, I just started listening to this podcast on a whim and it has honestly changed my life. This is amazing. I've never realised how important mental health was until I started implementing some of the practices and tips I've learned from you. Thank you. That's amazing. That's very sweet. Amy and I are very grateful. Hey there. I stumbled upon your podcast a few weeks ago and it's seriously been a game changer for me. I'm feeling more in control than I have in a long time. If you're taking suggestions for upcoming episodes, we are. I'd love to hear about coping with stress and burnout. I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling overwhelmed lately. So any tips or strategies would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Well, uh, that's a very good suggestion. Thank you. And we, we can look into that. We've had a very good week of messages. Thank you for getting in touch. Very varied and very interesting. Please email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, it's self-hatred with Sarah Stein, Librano from The School of Life. It's a really good, really good interview and if you like this podcast please give us a rating because it really helps and share it with a friend maybe leave a review and all of that helps us get it out to a wider audience lots of love bye 
Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 